All right, uh, we're going to go ahead and get started, everyone. Thanks for being here. I think we ran out of handouts, by the way. Um, and I was going to shame you all, the shame seminar, for not signing up in time when the email went out. If, if you had, I would have known how many handouts to bring, but, you know, maybe I'll shame Ryan Anderson since he's back there. The email probably should have gone out quicker to say, hey, sign up for your seminars, and then we would have known how many to bring. But I'll, I'll make more copies for tomorrow's handout. There'll be another handout tomorrow, so uh, we should have enough then. But if you didn't get a handout, I, I did a quick count. I think there's almost enough, so just sit by someone and, um, and share off them. And, oh, great. There's an extra. Um, yeah, anybody not have a handout? Um, and the guy who was in here last hour said it was really loud with the AC on, so we turned off the AC partly because they're recording this one, so um, if it gets unbearably hot, someone just feel free to open that back door. I see a spare chair there. We can just stick a chair uh, in front of the door and hopefully that'll keep things cooler, but since they're recording this one, he was saying you're going to have to like yell, and especially the recorder to pick it up, I just don't think it's going to work with AC. So if you get really hot, somebody who's sitting in the back, maybe one of you guys, just feel free to put a chair in the door, and hopefully hopefully that'll help. Um, but yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Brad. I'm the campus minister of Indiana. Um, it takes take some guts to go to a seminar on shame. You know, we should have had like a door like, oh, this is the, you know, I don't know, what's some cool topic seminar. And, you tell your tell your friends like yeah I'm I'm going to you know the seminar on covenant theology or you know something like that going to the seminar on shame you know have like a back hidden door everybody coming to this one probably should have done something like that um, but yeah grateful you're here shame is maybe you maybe this is why you're here shame is kind of a popular cool topic these days um, I mean it is honestly in terms of like research and the amount of stuff being written about it a lot of it. You, if you're here, you've maybe heard of Brene Brown and her research. She's become really popular. We'll, we'll talk about a lot of her research a lot in the seminar. But it's become a very um, kind of popular topic, especially since Brene Brown. Um, but we don't want to just do it because hell, it's popular and it's you know a, kind of a cool invoke thing to talk about these days. We're doing the seminar because shame is a very biblical topic. It is all over the Bible. Um, I'll mention a guy, uh, Ed Welch, uh, his in his book on shame. He talks about. Shame is actually talked about in the Bible about ten times more than guilt. Things related to shame, whether it's you know um, feelings of unworthiness or defilement or uncleanliness, whatever, those terms are used ten times more than even ideas associated with guilt in the Bible. So it's all over the Bible. Um, and the fact that it's very big in our culture, I think, means it's a, an important topic that deserves our attention. So... I want to thank you for being here. Um, there's a lot of, as you probably, as you've been to seminars and smart conference, you'll hear the guys standing up front will say, there are so many other guys who have done research on this or have done seminars on it, and I'm borrowing their stuff, and that's the same for this. There are many of your campus ministers I've talked to and said, hey, you've taught on this before. Give me some ideas. Give me some of your uh, books, resources you've looked at. Um, so I probably won't be able to mention all of them, but probably one of the biggest, Brian Sorgenfry, he... Uh, gave me some material that was great on this, and he has told me a lot of this is coming from Ricky Jones, who was a RUF campus minister years ago, now a pastor in Oklahoma. Um, so those guys, I'll try to mention the other ones, but there's a lot of guys that um, have done a lot of thinking on this, and I'm, I'm you know, basically plagiarizing them. Not really, because I'm giving them credit, but more or less. Um, so yeah, I'm grateful you're here. Let me, uh, I'm going to get my little reporter going, and then let me pray for us, and jump in, and I'll kind of tell you what the plan is for these next two days, but um, let's pray before we get started. <clears throat> Jesus, we uh, thank you um, just for summer conference, for the chance to get away at the end of the semester like this. Um, we thank you that you have brought us all here safely, um, and we thank you that you are a God who knows our shame, who knows um, what we experience day in and day out, and how powerful of an effect shame can have on us. So, Lord, we ask, would you um, guide us? Would you be with us um, during this time? Um, would you help us wherever we are? I know some here um, know you as Lord and Savior, and I'm sure some don't. Um, but would you show up? Would you show us um, who you are and how you think about and deal with our shame? Um, we pray that you would be honored through all of this, and we just, again, thank you for this opportunity and ask your blessing upon it. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, okay, well, yeah, basically kind of an overview of what these two days are going to look like. Today, we're going to talk about, I think this is on kind of the very top of your outline there for this first day. We're going to basically talk about defining shame. What exactly is shame and how does it function in our lives? Then after that, we'll talk about experiencing shame. Um, so kind of defining it. What is it? How is it different from guilt? Where does it come from? Um, and then the experience of it, what it looks like in our lives, what it does to us in our lives. So we'll kind of leave a little today, a little, you know, geez, not maybe feeling so great. You know, talking about shame and its effects on us isn't exactly fun. But, you know, you've got the afternoon to go have fun and to go to recover from this, you know, really depressing time. No, it won't be depressing, but it will be a lot of the reality of it that's hard. And then when we come back tomorrow, we're going to talk about healing for shame or healing shame. Um, we'll see the gospel, and we'll see, you know, not just the reality of it in our lives, but the, the way we can be healed from it, and what Jesus, uh, what the Bible says about how shame can be different. Um, so, today we'll be defining it, experiencing it, come back tomorrow, um, and we'll see the healing for shame, what that looks like. So, um, that's kind of the overview. Let me just to kind of kick things off, um, talk a little bit about maybe two experiences of mine where I've experienced um, shame. One's from a while ago, one's more recent. Um, I played soccer my whole life growing up. I uh, love playing soccer. don't play it as much as I like to anymore, but uh, enjoy it. And so in high school, I was a defender, usually played stopper, right pullback, and on my high school team, I would experienced my junior year of high school varsity soccer team, where in one season, three different goals went in my own net that were all my fault. That were all because of like me, 100%. So, and that sounds bad enough as it is, as it is, but like the way it happened too is even worse. So, the first time, like it was kind of early in the season, and I was just being a good defender and you know trying to stop the ball. I was basically like deflected off my foot, winning the goal. You know, it's shameful, but it's not like, oh my gosh, I can't even pick myself off the ground anymore. It's like that happens. You know, in, in some countries they kill you if that happens. You know, like the fans of that team they murder you. Thankfully, that doesn't really happen in high school soccer in America. But I felt shameful because of that. The second time, it was a little worse. It was like, okay, there's kind of a corner kick came in. There was kind of a scramble. And like I tried to clear it. Another guy did it. And it was more or less a deflection, but a little bit more intentional, like coming off my foot. It wasn't just like a pure deflection. Like I had a little direction on it, and it ended up going in my goal. So I felt pretty bad, and the shame is starting to mount. And, but I'm kind of like, you know, these things happen. So twice in one season, that's bad enough. Three times in one season. The third time, similar thing, the corner kick comes in. There's like, you know, this kind of scramble. If we got to clear it out of here, and you're trying to tell your defender to push out. And I don't know what happened. I mean, this is a long time ago now. But I literally, like, yes, like I said, I played soccer my whole life. These things can still happen. I literally, like, cleared it into my own goal. Like, I just, I think my head was down. The goal's there. And the ball's here. And I don't know which way is what. And I'm thinking that's out of bounds. And it's like, and i got to clear the ball. And I just kick it, like, right past my keeper. And he's just, no! And I just, like, after I kick it, I look up. And the ball just flies right past him into my goal. And I'm, like, on the ground. Like, I can't believe I just did that. And, you know, probably as a junior in high school, I still had some of that junior high, like, awkwardness and, like, self-conscientiousness and, like, self-awareness to where, like, probably other guys on my, on my team, that could have happened to me, like, yeah, that happened, that feels stupid, but I was just, like, humiliated, and so that, I think that our third game was, like, a Friday, so the whole weekend was absolutely dreading going back to school, going back to school finally on Monday, and, you know, all my friends just like, you idiot, how did you, what is wrong with you? That's the third time this happened this season? Like, what? And so all week, walk around school, and just like, I am, I can't believe I did that. And just such shame and, and feeling of stupidity. So that's one, one experience. Second one, a little bit more recent. This has happened a few times, I'll admit. But um, probably if you talk to your campus ministers, they would relate similar experiences. Um, we have our large group on Tuesday nights at IU, and I, I come back on Tuesday night, and it just was not a good large group. I didn't feel good about the sermon. Um, music wasn't that good. There weren't many people there. In Indiana, it gets really cold in the winter, and we love basketball at our school. So a lot of times, IU has a lot of games on Tuesday nights. So a lot of times, Tuesday nights, um, you know, especially in the winter, it's a smaller group, and it was one of those nights. It was a big basketball game. 
I just wasn't on my game. I just just didn't feel great about it. And so I come home. My wife comes usually every other week to large group. This was a night she didn't come. And I came home already just kind of feeling sorry for myself and just down. Gosh, there's no one there. Sermon wasn't good. Music was, yeah. You know, just frustrated. And I come home just already kind of in a funk. And she had waited up for me. We always go to Starbucks, our students do afterwards. But um, she was sweet enough to wait up for me to say goodnight. I kind of come in the room already feeling bad and um, just kind of hanging my head in shame and, you know, feeling that. But, you know, she's awake, which was sweet. I'm like, well, you know, she asked how I went. I'm not that great. I didn't feel like it. But, you know, it's okay. Almost like in the sense of trying to make myself feel better. But, hey, I had a really good one-on-one today. Can I tell you about it? Like, I had a great lunch with this student. Can I tell you about it? Honey, I'm really tired. Can you tell me in the morning? Can, can I just go to bed now? Like, I'm, I stayed up to the city night, but I don't want to hear a long story. And I just want to go to bed. So instantly, me, who's like, you know, already feeling shameful and already like needing approval and needing her to tell me, sure, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to hear about your one-on-one. Just this, fine, then I'll just go downstairs and leave you alone. And, and so I just reacted in this snarky, not even like hardly saying goodnight. Fine, just go to bed. I'll go downstairs. And so I'm already feeling shameful because large group wasn't that great. And then I go downstairs and I'm like, fine, just go to bed. And I'm just kind of a jerk. And I'm feeling more shameful that I would, my wife is tired. We have four little kids, and she's exhausted from the day. She was sweet enough to stay up for me. I realized, what a jerk, to make her feel bad for not wanting to stay up and listen to my one-on-one that wasn't even that big of a deal. She's exhausted. She's kind enough to stay up. So what do I do? I go downstairs and just bury my shame in a bowl of chips and salsa. And I had a horrible large group, and, my, and I'm such a jerk and so needy and such a baby. Why do I have to have her listen to me? I don't need that. And, Man, I'm such a baby. Bad large group. I'm a, I'm a baby and my wife will just bury my shame in chips and salsa and eat till I feel better and then go to sleep. So those are two experiences of shame for me. One long time ago, one a little bit more recent. But what what is happening in all that? I guess the bigger question I want us to answer, what is shame? We need to kind of get some definitions uh, and, and talk about those before we can really kind of delve deeper and, and talk about how we experience shame. So, as I mentioned, Brene Brown uh, has made this topic very popular. She's uh, a social worker, a professor of, of social work at University of Houston, probably one of the world's foremost researchers on shame. And this is kind of her definition that's going to be our working definition in this seminar. This is from a book uh, called Daring Greatly that she wrote. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. I'll say it one more time. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Michael Phillips, uh, the RUF campus minister at Georgia Tech, um, he sent me some, some of his thoughts on shame. I think he did a seminar on it at a winter conference. I really liked uh, his definition, so we'll primarily kind of keep Brené Brown's in the back of our mind, but I think Michael's is really good too. He said it's a relational exposure where something in you is seen as bad, and it may or not may not be, but shame requires the gaze of another. Even if it's in our own head, we imagine God or others seeing us as bad, unworthy, dirty, and therefore assess that we are the same. So. What, what Michael is pulling on, or what he's drawing out there, is really so much of it is based on how either another sees us or how we perceive someone else sees us, whether that's God or another person. So much of shame is rooted in how somebody sees us or how we think they see us. So before we get too much further into shame, I think it's important to kind of delineate what's the difference between shame and guilt. Um, I think... I mean, honestly, before I started working on a seminar, I didn't really understand exactly what the difference is, but I think it's important. A very just basic way to understand the two is guilt equals I did something bad. Shame equals I am something bad. Or guilt, I did something wrong. Shame, I am something wrong. One person has said... uh, Guilt could be the objective experience of of something, of of wrongdoing. Shame is the subjective feeling of that. It's guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I subjectively feel that I am wrong because of what I did. 
So let me give a couple examples to kind of help you uh, help you see what I'm saying here. Again, Brene Brown in her book Daring Greatly uses this example. She talks about, let's say she's late to a restaurant. If your self-talk is, if the way you talk to yourself about being late is, I am such an idiot, I'm a terrible friend, I'm a loser, I'm such a moron, I can't believe I was late. That's, that's shame. You're saying those things, I am that. However, if your self-talk is, I can't believe I did that, or what a crappy thing to do, that's guilt. You're saying, I did something wrong, not I am wrong. A couple other examples. Let's say you cheated on an exam. If the way you talk about yourself is that was wrong, I can't believe I did that, that was such a horrible thing to do, that's guilt. But if you're telling yourself, I'm a horrible, dishonest, lying person, no company should ever hire me, nobody should ever trust me, I am horrible, that's shame. Or, you looked at porn. You tell yourself, I looked at porn again last night, I sinned, that was wrong, I shouldn't have done that. It was such a horrible thing to do. That's guilt. But if you tell yourself, I'm a pervert, I'm disgusting, if my friends in RUF knew how often I looked at porn, they would never listen to me when I speak up in small group again. If they knew my porn addiction, they would want nothing to do with me. I am so disgusting. That's shame. So where we can get those kind of examples from biblically is, is and what we're going to go back to a lot, especially today in this seminar. Tomorrow we'll look at it bunch of other different passages. We're going to go back to the creation account, the account of creation and fall, beginning in Genesis. And in Genesis 3, which is when the fall into sin happened, Adam and Eve experienced guilt. They realized in eating of the forbidden fruit that they did wrong before God. And that was a good thing for them to recognize. To recognize God is good, his word is always right, he always knows what's for our good. We should obey him. He provides for us when we do wrong, it's bad for us. We're people, and things get messed up when we do our own way, and it dishonors him, and he deserves our respect. It's a good thing to recognize when we do wrong. It's a good thing to experience guilt, because then we can change, we can, we can admit our wrong, and we can be made right. It's a good thing to experience guilt. But God doesn't shame Adam and Eve when they do wrong, and he doesn't shame us when we do wrong. It's okay when we experience guilt, but we're not supposed to experience shame. God doesn't want them to experience shame when they do wrong, and he doesn't want you and me to experience shame when we do wrong. He doesn't shame them in the garden. They experience shame, though, and every one of us in here has experienced shame many, many times. So we'll see later what God does with that shame, but it's okay. He, he's a perfect God. We're not. It's okay for us to experience guilt. We're not supposed to experience shame. Excuse me. We might experience it, but it's not from him. He wants to remove that shame. He removes the guilt, too. We'll get to that, but he wants to remove the shame, too. Um, okay, so let me, let me uh, read this from Ed Welch in his book, Shame Interrupted, called Shame Interrupted, How God Lives the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. He says, Guilt lives in the courtroom where you stand alone before the judge. It says, you are responsible for wrongdoing and legally answerable. You are wrong. You have sinned. The guilty person expects punishment and needs forgiveness. Now listen to this. Shame lives in the community. Though the community can feel like a courtroom, it says you don't belong. You are unacceptable, unclean, and disgraced because you are wrong. You have sinned which is guilt, or wrong has been done to you, or you are, you are associated with those who are disgraced or outcast. The shamed person feels worthless, expects rejection, and needs cleansing, fellowship, love, and acceptance. And this is, I think, a great distinction in the way he puts this. Guilt and shame intersect when a particular sin is regarded by yourself or others to be worse than most sins. For example, get caught with child pornography, and you're going to experience both guilt and shame. Sadly, same-sex attraction often finds itself here too. But what if your anger briefly flares at a reckless driver? You might feel a little guilt, but most likely, no shame, because everyone else has done similar things. You understand that? Guilt is something where you go, I was wrong there. 
But when it's something horrible or something that our culture has said, or even our Christian subculture has said, that is worse, you're not just going to say, well, that's wrong. You're going to say, because of the voices around you, you're going to say, I am wrong, and I am a horrible person, and I am disgusting and unclean and vile. Understand that difference. So, where does shame come from? This is an illustration I heard from someone else. But let's say, you know, before I walked over here, I was in my room doing my nose. Uh, let's say I'm sitting there picking my nose. I'm not going to feel any shame for doing that. I'm by myself. Everybody picks their nose. But what if I walked in here, and I'm up here, and I thought I'm by myself, and I'm kind of looking at my nose. I'm sitting there picking my nose. Just All of a sudden, I look up, and there's like 10 people that have arrived, and they're staring at me. I'm going to feel some shame. I'm going to feel really stupid for picking my nose in front of you all. So you understand, picking your nose is not necessarily right or wrong. It's not a bad thing to do. But I feel shame because it's tied to the gaze of another. It's tied to how someone else sees me or how I perceive you see me. You might think, the guy's picking his nose. I pick my nose all the time. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm telling myself, oh my gosh, I'm an idiot. These students think I'm such a moron. I'm sitting there picking my nose and looking like an idiot. I think, or I'm telling myself these things because how I think you perceive me, how you see me. So in order to understand where that comes from, why it's that way, why it's so tied to what we think, someone else or what God thinks of us, again, we have to understand what happened in Genesis 1-3. through The world is not the way it's supposed to be. God created it perfect. There is not supposed to be this... We are, the world's not supposed to be a place of sin. We are not supposed to be sinful people. But Adam and Eve broke God's command, and now sin is everywhere, and it's in all of our lives. Because of that, we know, if you're not a Christian, I would, I would say that you have a sense even, that you know the world is not the way it's supposed to be, and you have a sense that I know I'm not the way it's supposed to be. I'm not whole. I'm not acting the way I was created to act. And because of that, because we know the world's not the way it's supposed to be, and we are not the way we're supposed to be, we, we hide. We don't want people to see the real me. I don't want you to see me picking my nose. I don't want you to see me being a baby in front of my wife and being all needy and, you, you don't care about my one-on-one. And I don't want you to see that I scored a goal three times my own goal in high school. I, I don't want you to see the way I get short with my kids at times. I don't want you to see my insecurities in front of my students when I have a one-on-one with someone that I don't want to have and how just kind of stupid I can be. We know there's something wrong and we want to hide that from each other. Many of us go, I don't want you to see me on the beach today. I don't like the way I look. I don't look the way I'm supposed to look. I, I, things are not the way they're supposed to be. I'm not supposed to feel this way about myself. So, Shame is being seen and feeling naked, exposed, and vulnerable. And feeling like everybody can see who you are. You don't want them to see that. When we feel naked, exposed, and and vulnerable, we often feel unworthy. We feel, I don't measure up. And people, if they see the real me, they'll think less of me. So... If shame comes from how we perceive others see us, and if it leads to this feeling of, of exposure and worthiness, what specifically causes that? What are the things in our life that cause shame? There's kind of three things, and again, other, other campus ministers, other authors have kind of broken this down. I'm just stealing from them and got some examples that I'll give you that I think we can relate to. But first, what causes it? The things we do are sexual choices. We sense... Maybe God, he sees and he knows, you know, the sexual choices in my life. And I feel shame because I sense God knows, God sees this. I can't hide from him. I don't think this is the way it's supposed to be. Maybe you're under stress. Maybe this was a stressful semester for you. You had just a hard load of classes or there was just one class that was just really difficult. And the stress is just kind of mounting, and then on top of that, you have this roommate that is just a complete mess. I mean, just junk everywhere. They never clean up after yourselves. And one day you come home after finding out you didn't do, do so well on this test, and you just laugh at it. Would you just clean this up? How old are you? We've been living together for months. I've never seen you clean up. I'm constantly sweeping after your messes. I'm constantly doing your dishes. And then you feel shame because... You've lashed out at your roommate, and before God, you know, that's not the right response to deal with my stress, is to just take it out on them. 
Or maybe, you know, you went out last weekend and you got drunk and you feel shame because you can't say no when people ask you to go out and go drinking. You can't say no. You just have this, okay, sure, I'll go. So it can be things we do. It can be things done to us. Again, because of Adam and Eve's sin, because of their idea of saying, God, we can do different from you, and yet this awareness they have, we are not the way things are, the way we're supposed to be, the world's not the way it's supposed to be. People, because of that, people say and do awful things to each other. I don't need to belabor that point. You all know that. You can think of a million examples, but maybe just a few. You feel shame because of things done to you. Maybe the way your uncle touched you as you were a child. Or things your neighbor asked you to do when you were young. You feel deep shame and dirtiness because of this. Or maybe your mother was never available to you emotionally growing up. And you even tried you know, when you were in middle school and starting to experience different, you know, emotions and different feelings and this awkwardness, or even in high school when there was a, a boy that you liked, and you went to your mom and tried to say, hey, mom, can we talk about this? Can we kind of connect on this? And she was too busy. She was too preoccupied. She had too many other things to do. And you feel this shame of, I guess I'm not worthy of her time. I guess I'm not worthy of her attention. And you feel unimportant. You feel like, well, I guess I just don't matter. Or maybe as, as when you were younger, you wanted so badly that approval of your, your older sibling and their friends, and you tried so hard to be cool enough and to fit in, you know, be out playing in the neighborhood, and hey, look at me, I can play, you know, baseball with you guys too, and I'm good enough, or you'd ride bikes with them. But they would constantly make fun of you, and they would constantly just look for opportunities to humiliate you and to show you, yeah, you're not one of us, you're not as cool as us. You wanted so badly, you tried so hard to get their approval. Yet they just humiliated you. They just made you feel stupid. And you feel worthless and stupid from years of this. Maybe the shame, that feeling of exposure and of unworthiness comes from what that guy did to you earlier this semester. You thought he was different. You guys were hanging out after a party and you thought he was different, but he wasn't. You feel dirty and disgusting because of what he did. So it can be things we do Things done to us. And the third thing that often causes shame is Satan. The Bible makes it clear that he wants to destroy people in the world. That he hurls accusations at us. He says, you have extra body weight. No guy will ever want you. You don't look good enough. Or he says to the guys, maybe, you're, you're too quiet in social situations. Girls think you're weird and awkward and they, they'll never be interested in you. You're not cool enough. You're not funny enough. You don't have the confidence in social situations. You're, you're always going to be alone. He wants you to believe things like that. Or he says, you have a learning disability. You're flawed. You're, there's something not right about you. Or you come from a poor family. You're different. Everybody else around you has all these things and drives nice cars and dresses in the coolest clothes and you're different. You, you don't have, you don't come from those social circles. You're different and weird compared to everyone else. Satan wants us to think, if people knew my real story, if they knew who I really am, if they knew the thoughts going into my mind, if they knew where I come from, or if they knew the things I struggle with at night when I say I'm studying, but I'm really doing something that I shouldn't, if they knew that, they would reject me. They would want nothing to do with me. That's what Satan wants us to think. And those lies, he, those are, he says those to everyone, all of us. I mean, Ray Cortez, the guy here who's leading our, our larger golf all week. We think, oh, well, he's some great preacher, obviously. He was asked to come preach at RUF Summer Conference. He probably doesn't hear those. He knows how to block them out. No. Go talk to him this week. Ask him. Any of your campus ministers, all of them will say, I hear those lies all the time, and they are so powerful in our head. They are so powerful in my mind. I did, I, this is my ninth year doing RUF, and I still, the week before Summer Conference, I find myself, for various reasons, I get really anxious. Because I come here, I'm like, is my seminar going to be good enough? Some of these campus ministers, you know, I've been doing this longer than them, but they still intimidate me. They're so cool, and they're great teachers, and I feel kind of unworthy, and, you know, am I going to look like an idiot at some point this week? There are lies that we all tell ourselves. So many, so many of them are from Satan. We often, I think an important thing we need to hear is... 
we feel shame for things that we should not feel shame for. I mean, a silly example is picking my nose, but our, our bodies, for example. So many of us, this week, you come to summer conference and you're signing yourself up for the possibility of feeling shame because people are in bathing suits and you're walking around in a bathing suit and you're measuring yourself up. I do it. And you're going to say, you're going to tell yourself lies. You're going to hear those lies. And the reality is your body is perfect the way God made it. I had a student, we were eating lunch a couple weeks ago, and um, she had an ankle boot on, and I hadn't seen her in a week or two. I said, what happened? She talked about how she was getting off a campus bus at our school, and she just completely, getting off the bus, put her foot down, tripped, and just fell. Like, And it was on a really crowded part of campus, you know, busy time of day, the bus was packed, and she didn't break her ankle, but it was like a pretty bad sprain. And she was just telling me, like, I felt like such an idiot. Like, I just stepped off the bus, fell, and my ankle just gave out, and she sprained her ankle. And she felt, really, as we talked about it, real shame from that. And I had to help her realize, like, anybody could have done that. Like, those things, that is not a reason to feel shame. But we do. Maybe, you know, some of your friends are great basketball players, and you're just, you can't handle it out on the court. You try, and every time you try, you just feel like an idiot. You can't play well at all, and you tell yourself, why can't I be a better basketball player? Why can't I, why can't I measure up in this class when I study with my friends for it? Like, it's okay. God has gifted you in other ways. He's gifted you and, and created you beautifully in other ways. Just because you can't play basketball well, or your friends are all great in economics, and you can barely keep up with them, that's okay. And I'll say this, that shame is a very powerful motivating factor in our lives. Uh, example, I talked to Brene Brown, forgetting she had dinner plans. Let's say you forget that you had dinner plans with a friend. Your friend very well might use shame to really make you feel bad about that. How did you forget? We said this up a week ago. You're a horrible friend. How? It was a Friday night. What else are you going to be doing? You're not studying on a Friday night. Why did you forget about this dinner? You're such an idiot. First of all, I don't know if that person would be a friend if they respond that way. But shame is a powerful motivating factor. I mean, think about how many, how many governments around the world use shame and it still is a form of, of punishment. Like putting people in the stocks where you, that's like, you know, medieval times, they like, they like, you know, clip them in here and people can throw like vegetables at them and humiliate them. We'll talk about the crucifixion tomorrow. The crucifixion is not just about, you know, well, it's a form, a form of punishment. It is a shaming form of punishment. And shame is a powerful influence in that way, and our, our entire world knows it and uses it in that way. So I think that's a good kind of, hopefully, definition of what shame is, um, kind of how it's different from guilt, where it comes from. So I want us to talk about how we experience shame. Um, what does it do to us deep down? Well, the first thing we'll say is what it does to us, we become highly aware of our own perceived flaws, things we don't like about ourselves. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. Before they sinned, they were naked and they didn't think anything of it. But then they sinned and they realized, oh my gosh, I'm naked and I don't like the way I look and I don't like who I am. I feel, I see flaws on my body, I see imperfections. That was what... That was what happened, and that same thing happens. We see things about ourselves, and we become aware of flaws about ourselves that we don't like. Dan Allender and Tremper Longman uh, say it this way in their book, The Cry of the Soul. They say, the self-awareness that comes with shame seems to shake brutally our very ground of being. Our core identity, the self, seems too ugly to face up to without dire consequences. Therefore, we contemptuously label the ugliness in terms of flawed dignity. I am stupid, fat, undisciplined, always late, never prepared. We can't deal with the things we don't like about ourselves, so we just label ourselves, I'm this way, I'm that way, I'm this person. What happens when we do that? It leads to self-destructive behaviors and to attacking or shaming others. We can't deal with ourselves, and so we either punish ourselves, essentially, or we punish other people. Brene Brown puts it this way. She says, It is human nature to want to feel worthy of love and belonging. When we experience shame, we feel disconnected and desperate for what worthiness. 
when we're hurting, either full of shame or even just feeling the fear of shame, we are more likely to engage in self-destructive behaviors and to attack or shame others. There's a great example of this in Genesis 9. We all know Noah, you know, the guy who built the ark and saved humanity from the flood. God used him to kind of recreate humanity. But right after the flood, there is this bizarre account in Genesis 9 where he gets drunk and he passes out. And he literally passes out in this tent. And his sons, one of them, Ham, walks by and sees their dad sitting there passed out. And he's not just passed out drunk. He's actually naked laying there. And his son sees him and is just like, oh my gosh, dad, what the heck are you doing? You're really embarrassing me for my friends. And so he goes and gets his other brothers and he's like, hey, we got to do something. Dad's been an idiot, but we got to like cover him up. So they get this blanket and they walk backwards. And so they're not looking at him. They kind of drop it on him and cover him up and, and cover up his nakedness and then walk away. So Noah apparently sees this happening and he's like not fully passed out. And he wakes up and he realizes what's happened. He's gotten drunk, he's fallen asleep, and is just naked, laying there, and he realizes his son, Ham, who Ham is actually trying to do a good thing, obviously, but his son saw him in this completely, literally naked, vulnerable, exposed state, and he is angry that his son saw him looking like such an idiot, looking drunk, passed out, and naked. And so what does he do? Again, his son was trying to do a good thing for this, but because Noah feels complete idiot, he curses his son Ham, and he says, cursed are you, and cursed is your son, and pronounces these curses upon him, because he can't deal with this feeling of exposure and unworthiness and of shame, and so he curses him. We do that same thing when we feel exposed and we take it out on someone else. In a sense, I did that to my wife when I felt kind of I didn't feel great about myself. I didn't like the way large we went. I felt kind of lonely. And I just, fine, you don't want to listen to me? Forget you. I'll go, down, go downstairs. I'm not even going to say goodnight. I'll go downstairs and bury my shame in some food. How do we do this? We tell ourselves, I'm unworthy. I'm disgusting. Whether because somebody sees us, like Ham saw Noah, or again, we just feel that unworthiness disgusting before God, or we feel, if somebody saw me looking at porn now, if somebody saw me cheating on this exam, if somebody saw me obsessing over my looks the way I do and I feel so stupid because of it, if somebody saw me, I just feel like an idiot. And in that disgust of ourselves, we self-injure, we cut. We do things to say, I can't stand myself. Or that self-destruction might look like, maybe you've always felt like a sex object. You've always been told since a young age, I am nothing more than a sex object. I am, that's all the value I have. So, I guess I will just sleep with that guy. I guess I will do that. I guess I will go find someone again because it feels better than the loneliness. It feels better than the feeling of just being alone and being worthless. At least somebody values me for my sexuality. Or maybe you find out, I didn't get the grades to get into the grad school I wanted. And I, you feel stupid and you feel like, I'm not going to, my parents wanted me to go to grad school so bad and I'm not going to make it. I might as well get wasted tonight. I can't deal with the humiliation. I can't deal with what they're going to say when they find out how my grades were this semester. I'll just go get wasted so I don't have to think about it. Or you're, you take it out on other people. You, you feel humiliated from thinking, yes, I have a chance with her. This girl, this could work out. And you realize, no, it's not going to happen. She's not interested. You were just telling yourself that. And so you're angry, you're frustrated, you're down on yourself. Why did I get my hopes up? And you're bitter and angry towards your roommate. And you lash out at them. Maybe your parents are going through a divorce. And it's the pain, the just insecurity, the loneliness, the just doubts you keep telling yourself are so much that the stress is just mounting. And then in your group project, one of your team members just totally drops the ball on their part. And instead of just maybe expressing a little frustration or trying to let it go, you just... How did you do that? We're, gonna, we're not going to get this grade. How did you forget to include that in our, in our paper? You are such an idiot. And you can't deal with the shame. You can't deal with the pain you're feeling. And so you've got to take it out on someone. And you've got you to vent it somewhere. And so you take it out on that group project number. That's what Brown said. When we experience the shame, we, when we feel, when we want to feel worthy of love and belonging, but we don't, we're more likely 
to engage in self-destructive behaviors and to attack or shame others. This is a, an example from Brian Sorgenfry. I think, I think he got this from Ricky Jones. Ricky Jones was talking about how he was talking to a cocaine addict. And he, he asked, what did it feel like? Uh, he described the cocaine high and said, it's the most wonderful feeling you'll ever get. It's unbelievable. And then he asked him, was there a hangover involved? He said, there's a terrible hangover. The hangover is far worse than the high is good. So Ricky asked, well, I guess that means you don't want to do it again. He responded, are you stupid? Are you not listening? When you feel terrible, you want to feel good again. And the only thing you can think of that makes you feel good is cocaine. That's what makes it so addictive. It's similar in sexual sin. It seems like there is pleasure and there's joy and there's someone accepting you in your nakedness. But when you're separated, you feel lonelier than you did in the beginning. You think there's going to be something there, but then once it's over, you feel worse. It's true of pornography. It, it, it tempts you and says, there'll be fulfillment with this. You'll feel better. This image is going to satisfy me. It's going to make things better. But then it doesn't work, so you click on image after image, trying to find one that will make you feel better, but it simply doesn't exist. Because all it is is a picture. Even if you could have sex with that person in that picture, that's just an experience. And we weren't created for an experience. We were created for a relationship. No experience can satisfy that longing that is there. Only a relationship. Only a sexual relationship that's in the covenant bond of marriage that has has the, the rest of the security and the commitment to make such an emotional thing like sex able to happen and able to happen in that kind of trusting relationship where you're not just throwing yourself out there to get your heart broken, but surrounded, that emotionally charged experience is surrounded by trust and commitment. But we think, no, this experience will help. And the reason why is because we think, and in sin, we, we never think rationally we think, oh, this is what I need. And we just reach for something that will make us feel better. Because we don't think rationally. And so we go in the shame cycle over and over again. I feel horrible. What's going to fix it? And we reach for something. And it doesn't work. And we feel horrible again. So what do I do? I reach back for that same thing. Whether it's you know, some drug or alcohol or some you know, pornography or some relationship or if I can just achieve this grade, then I'll feel better, and it just sends us in a cycle. It didn't satisfy. We feel horrible, we reach for it again. The shame cycle. That's why Brown's research shows that shame is highly correlated with addiction, violence, aggression, depression, eating disorders, and bullying. Somehow we think I can feel better, and when it fails us, we don't know what to do but to go back to it. Brown says this, she says, shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we can change and be different. We tell ourselves, I'll always be an addict, I'll always be a jerk, I'll always be lazy and selfish, or I'll always be just rude and self-centered. I can never be anything different because we get stuck in that cycle. So I want us to ask, how does social media affect the way we experience shame? I think when we talk about the experience of it, a lot of, I mean, as I've said, the Bible talks about shame. I think I quoted this. Uh, Ed Welch said 10 times more than it does guilt. It's something that's been happening since the beginning of the creation of mankind. But I think there are ways unique today in our culture that makes it even more, uh, more all over the place. And one of them is social media. There was a, an article last year in Christianity Today uh, by Andy Crouch titled Return of Shame. And he talked about how the West, the culture we live in, has traditionally been seen as what we call a guilt-innocence culture. Whereas like the Far East, for example, like a culture like Japan, is more of a shame-honor culture. Or, yeah, shame-honor culture. And he says this, In a shame culture, you know you are good or bad by what your community says about you. By contrast, in a guilt culture, you know you are good or bad by how you feel about your behavior and choices. But here's the thing. He says, our culture, the West, is shifting from a guilt-innocence culture to what he says it's not exactly a, a shame um, honor culture, but what he calls a fame-shame culture. So in an honor-shame culture, judgments are just bestowed upon you by those who know you, by your community. So in a place like Japan, in the culture of the Bible, you're always trying to like do something to where you receive honor by your community, and where they see, this is an honorable, good person. Look what he's done for our community. But if you fail their expectations, you're an outcast. You, 
You have let down your family and you've brought disgrace upon your family name and upon our community by this sin and by what you've done. You, you strive to be seen as worthy by that community. But in what he says we're becoming in a fame slash shame culture, your worthiness can be bestowed upon you by those who don't even know you. A great example of this is the Hunger Games. You know, the, the Hunger Games take place in an arena where the entire nation of Pan Am is watching on their TV screens, and they're seeing, wow, that was an honorable thing. Look at how Katniss, how she stuck up for that other person. Or, that was shameful. Look at how he betrayed this person. Honor and shame is bestowed upon you by those who may not even know you. And so in the world of social media, you can feel great fame, approval, worthiness, validation from people who may barely even know you when your Facebook status gets 135 likes and, you know, I don't know, 12 comments, or you tweet something that you think is just brilliant and it gets retweeted 15 times. You feel great fame. Look at all these people who have validated me. Or... You know, you post a picture on Instagram and everybody's like, you look so adorable, you look beautiful, I love that dress. But then your friend posts a picture on Instagram, your friend, where you fall asleep on the couch at your apartment and there's drool running down your cheek and they take a picture and put it on Instagram and then these people, many of whom you don't even really know that well, they're just making these comments about, oh my God, you're such an idiot, look at you, look at, look at what a moron. And you feel great shame from people who hardly even know you, who are not your friends, who are not your community, they're just acquaintances. Or, when you post a picture of yourself in that new dress, and you get three likes, and one comment, and it's your grandma saying how you <laughs> Great, that's what I was really looking for with this post. I mean, ask, ask any celebrity, Kim Kardashian, for example, she goes out, you know, she has a bad day, she goes out shopping in LA, you know, doesn't put her makeup on, just kind of rolled out of the bed and went to the store, but someone from the paparazzi catches a picture of her, and it's all of a sudden all over social media, and she looks horrible, we all think, and she knows what it's like to feel shame in this fame shame culture. In a guilt innocence culture, it's, well, how do I feel about myself? That's not so much our culture anymore. It's, what do people say about me? And it's a, in a culture today, in a fame shame culture, where it's people that may not even know us, whose input really doesn't matter. So how do women and men experience shame differently? We're going to wrap up pretty soon here, and we'll hopefully have just a few minutes for questions. And um, Tomorrow, like I said, we'll talk about the healing of this. There'll be a lot more hope rather than kind of this, Ugh, yeah, I do feel a lot of shame in my life. We'll, we'll see the hope for this. But I, I want to just say a few things about how we experience it differently. Again, this is a lot of this is coming from Brene Brown. She uses this image of women... For you all, your experience of shame is often this experience, the, the metaphor she uses is this like spider web, where there's all these things telling you, you have to be this way, you have to be that way. There are these contradictions, and the more you try to be one or the other, the more you twist around in this web, and it's like you know some insect that's stuck in a spider web. The more it tries to get out, just the more ensnared and wrapped up and stuck it feels. And the more you say, I'll be this, and I'll be that, I'll be this, and I'll be that, all the expectations are culture places on you, the more you're just stuck and constrained and wrapped up in this web. Here's some examples she gives. Women are told, this is how they experience shame, be perfect, but don't make a fuss about it. If you really got it together, perfection should be easy. Don't upset or hurt anyone's feelings, but say what's on your mind. Dial the sexuality way up, but know when to dial it down. Otherwise, you know, you know what people are going to say about you. Not. Just be yourself. But not if it means being shy or unsure. Confidence is attractive. Everybody wants someone to be attractive or to be confident. Don't make people feel uncomfortable, but be honest. Tell people what you think. Don't get too emotional, but, but don't be too detached either. Too emotional and you're weird and hysterical. Too detached and you're cold-hearted, or as she said, I think this is being recorded, but she said, don't be too detached or you're a cold-hearted bitch. That's what people would say. If you read Brandy Brown, she, she's pretty raw in her vocabulary. So <laughs> I realized I had some quotes of hers that way, and they were like, oh, we're going to record this. I'm like, well, if you're listening, forgive me. I said bitch. <laughs> so, men. She talks about women. It's a, like an ensnaring spider web. Men, it's this box that you have to fit in. Culture says you have to be this way, and if you don't fit in that box, 
we don't care about you. You don't, you should feel shame. You don't matter. We don't, you're, you're not what a real man is. So this box, let me give some examples of how men experience shame, this, this box they're taught to fit in. Shame is failure. At work or school, on the football field, in relationships, it's just failure. Or shame is being wrong. Not doing it wrong, but being wrong. Shame is a sense of being defective. Shame happens when people think you're soft. It's degrading and shaming to be seen as anything but tough. Revealing any weakness is shaming. Basically, shame is weakness, men. Or showing fear is shameful. You can't show fear. Those are some of the ways men are taught to feel, are taught to be in this box, and if not, you should feel shame. So how do we deal with all these expectations that are placed on us and the fact that we fail them and we feel shameful because women, you're going, I am not that. You know, you, maybe your church, they read that great passage, but they read that Proverbs 31 description, and you're like, gosh, I am not that. Or we read about these men, we read about these characters in the Bible who are strong and brave, and David went out and slayed Goliath, and you're like, I am not that. Sometimes I just want to hide in my room and eat chips and watch Netflix, and I don't want to be strong and brave. I am weak. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that we don't measure up, and how do we deal with the fact that we, we do feel shame? Well, as Adam and Eve did, we cover ourselves and hide. We try to hide from God, we try to hide from other people, we cover our nakedness with fig leaves. So how do we do that? We stay busy, so I don't have to deal with it. I don't have to deal with the fact that I can't meet expectations. I mean, I don't have to think about it. I'll just be busy and do, do, do. I'll go and make sure I'm busy, or so that people don't see the fact that I feel shameful and that there's pain. Or I'll hide behind my personality. Oh, I'll be a really fun person and just always be talking and always be going and always act like I'm okay so people don't know the pain and they don't know the fact that I hate myself and that I medicate myself through food or through alcohol or porn or through going from one relationship to another. We'll hide or we'll stay busy or we'll just hide behind our personality. Does any of that work? Do any of those things work? Can we hide from God? Even if we're able to put up a facade before our friends and they think, oh, this person's got it together, does it work before God? Does it make us feel any better? Obviously the answer is no. So what's the solution to dealing with our shame? Well, we don't have the solution. God has the solution. So tomorrow we'll jump into that. We'll look at a bunch of passages. We'll look at a bunch of different places in the Bible where we see how God deals with our shame and how he is the solution to our shame. The gospel tells us, yes, we feel shame, but, but God has done something through Jesus to deal with it. So come back tomorrow. We'll talk about that. Um, yeah, let's, uh, yeah, we don't have much time, so we'll go ahead and wrap up now. I'm not, I'm not in any huge hurry, so if you have questions, come talk to me. Tomorrow, we should have more time at the end for all of us to have questions, but I'm here. Uh, ask if you have any questions. Uh, thanks for coming, and uh, see you tomorrow. I'll make more copies for the handout tomorrow. Thanks for coming. Tomorrow. Thanks for coming. Tomorrow. Thanks for coming. Tomorrow.